0: Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website? Just go to gangrethepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Juneau, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to Gangrethepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y ThePodcast.com Welcome to Gangway the Podcast, I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Brooke Jarvis back in May of 2015. In this interview, Jarvis talks about her story, The Deepest Dig, which was included in the Best American Science and Nature Writing 2015 anthology, that story ran in the California Sunday Magazine. We also talked about her piece, Homeward, which also ran in the California Sunday Magazine. That story is about a young man from the jungles of Ecuador whose village sent him to the United States so he could be educated and come back to save the village from the oil industry and colonization.
1: Anyway, so they they kind of saw the writing on the wall of there, all of these new and difficult pressures that are changing. Their way of life and they had to do something about it but they were not you know they the the people who had power were were negotiating and operating in a way that was totally new to them and that they didn't understand it was it was very different from the way that things worked in the kofan community
0: since joining the podcast jarvis has won the livingston award in national reporting she won that in 2017 for her story unclaimed in 2016 she was the recipient of the Reporting Award from NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute and a finalist for the Penn USA Literary Award in Journalism and the Livingston Award in International Reporting. In November of 2017, her story, How One Woman's Digital Life Was Weaponized Against Her, went viral after being the cover story on Wired Magazine. And in December, she had a piece in the New York Times Magazine about the children of undocumented immigrants whose parents had been deported and yet they were left stateside. In June, Jarvis's story, The Obsessive Search for the Tasmanian Tiger, ran in the New Yorker. The Tasmanian Tiger has long been thought extinct, but now there is hope that it is still alive. As usual, we've linked to the stories that Jarvis talks about in this interview as well as all of the newer ones I've mentioned, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Brooke, welcome to Gangry the Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, Let's start by talking about The Deepest Dig, which ran in the California Sunday Magazine. Uh, First of all, can you talk a little bit about what that story is about?
1: Sure. Uh, So that story is about the advent of deep-sea mining, which is uh, really a brand new industry. There, there have been kind of some false starts over the years, some of which have funny stories around them. Um, it's something that we've thought about, but it's always been kind of just out of reach, and now it's really happening, uh, or about to really happen. And it's, um, what it means is, is mining metals at the bottom of the ocean in really you know, inaccessible places that the scientists who study them, when they talk about them, kind of invariably compare them to Mars or the Moon, you know, they're they're it's a part of our planet that we still know very little about. And scientists always say, oh, when you go somewhere new, you know, not only are you going to discover a new species, you're going to discover a new ecosystem. It's it, it's a it's a place we know very little about. Um, and deep sea mining is going to target a couple of well, three really different geological formations. Um in the deepest parts of the ocean one of which is hydrothermal vents so where like right where these minerals are precipitating out of the earth's crust and building these crazy um, towers uh, one will be seamounts um which are you know underwater mountains and that's they'll, they'll kind of be scraping the crusts of those and that's interesting because those are those are sort of havens for sea life in the open ocean. Um, and the other are, they're called polymetallic nodules, and they form in these beds in um, some of the deepest parts of the ocean in the abyssal plains, and they form so slowly over millennia. Uh, and the way those will be mined is, is kind of funny, actually. They're just going to be vacuuming them up, more or less. Um, so anyway, the what's been prompting this industry is the increasing scarcity of easy-to-access minerals. On the Earth's surface, and the um, you know development of technology, especially as related to offshore oil drilling and things like that, um, is making it more accessible. So I was interested in it because it's you know it's it's brand new. This it's a rare moment when you can look at something that we've really never done before, and ask how did we make the decision that this was a smart thing to do.
0: One of the interesting dynamics of the story, I thought, is that you do have these scientists involved who they don't like the idea of doing this, but they know that it's going to happen one way or the other. And so they're kind of like trying to maybe steer that. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you knew was going on when you started reporting or was that something that you came across and learned as you were reporting?
1: Um, A little bit of both. You know, I I just started looking into the industry as a whole and started thinking about who would be um, an interesting character. And the scientist that I primarily profiled, Cindy Vandover, is very prominent in the discussion about deep-sea mining from the scientific community. She's been um, very heavily involved. And so I was aware of her as, you know, a scientific source, but then, when I found that she was specifically an advisor to the company that I was also going to be profiling, that um, is is undertaking the very first project to go forward, uh, you know, there's there's some interesting tension there because I knew that she was very nervous about this industry, um, but the fact that she had made the decision to become directly involved with this first company says a lot about. You know the the way, like even in even somebody who who has a lot of misgivings, um, you know doesn't believe that this is something that can be stopped mm-hmm.
0: uh, how did you how did you come upon this story and and start thinking that it was something that you did want to to look into further?
1: That's a good question. I don't remember <laughs> how i first how I first heard about it. I'm sure it was just a news story um, that I then poked into more and more, and it, you know, spiraled from there. Um, I did, uh, so I, I pitched this story to the Middlebury Fellowship in Environmental Journalism, um, in it, which was then in its last year, unfortunately, and, you know, I thought it would be a good, story for them because you know it required some unusual resources to be able to pursue um, and it was you know it was very high stakes but very undercovered.
0: Mm-hmm. It, I also noticed that you are uh, a, a Alicia Patterson Foundation fellow um, for reporting on the advent of deep sea mining so does that mean that you're doing more work on this or is that part of what you just mentioned?
1: I, I am yeah. Um, and it's all sort of, you know, ongoing in the, in the early ish stages with that additional reporting. Um, mm-hmm. but basically af- after doing the story, um, which was a little bit of a, of an overview, like this is happening, mm-hmm. what does it mean? Um, I felt like there was a lot more to be said, uh, especially because it's an industry that's very much now, you know, it's, it's just starting to happen. So it's an important time to be paying attention to what's happening.
0: In, in many ways, the scientists are there because they know it's the very first time this is going to happen and they kind of want to keep an eye on it. It's kind of cool that you can also have a journalist there at the beginning because oftentimes journalists aren't there at the beginning of, of, of things. So have you thought about about that and about how you might be the one per, the one journalist who's going to know more about this than anyone else?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if that's if that's true or not. there there are other people who are watching it, but yeah, most of um, it's it's tricky to cover something like this because so little has actually happened that most of the stories that come out are are kind of overviews. Um, you know, and they they just introduce people to this deep sea world that they've never really heard or thought about and to what the possible complications and implications will be. Um, But even that is hard to report on because nobody knows. How do you report on something that has yet to happen?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So, you know, for example, I'm talking to uh, one of the stories I'm working on is is about the scientists who are trying to figure out what the stakes are and the kind of back doors that they're taking because they can't do a direct experiment yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're trying to find the closest corollaries to what might happen if... Something goes wrong with these projects right um so it is it's tricky trying to find these back doors in
0: you know I found the story really fascinating um and and compelling and it was not something that I ever thought I would ever read about because I'd never heard of it, I guess um one thing as as I read the lead, I wondered because it's very descriptive uh, of somebody going down on the deep sea dive in the Alvin. did you actually did you have a chance to go down in that? No, no?
1: Um, I would love to someday, but it's you know there're only for each dive there's space for the pilot and two other people. There are people who spend whole careers studying this kind of stuff and never get to go down. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you talk about how you then, I mean, since you didn't have that option, uh, how you went about recreating uh, that experience without actually having it yourself?
1: Really just talking in in a lot of detail with people who had done it. Um, Cindy was one. Uh, there's also somebody mentioned in the story named Michael Collier, who's okay. a poet who mm-hmm. had the opportunity to go down. And he was, um, you know, very uh, able to to describe that probably in a way that somebody who had done it more and it had been kind of a more mundane part of their life, um, it wouldn't just because they got used to it and, and to him, you know, it was this really magical once in a lifetime thing that he remembered everything about and had thought about over and over again for years. Um, so, you know, I pulled a lot from his experience. Um, and then they're, you know, they're kind of existing media. They, they try to make these dives accessible to people in all the ways that they can Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's both really expensive and really rare to actually get to go.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the poet and and you kind of end the story with him um, as this kind of person who, who went on this dive and had trouble actually being able to even describe it. Um, Why why do you decide that you, that that would be a good ending for the story?
1: Mostly because it's, you know, the middle part is, is very concerned with, the scientific perspective and the industry perspective, um, and, and also with the perspective of the people living in Papua New Guinea who have a, a sort of more mystical and respectful um, and distant view of the ocean. Uh, and I thought that his experience mirrored that a little bit. Um, you know, as, as we get more technologically savvy and we think, oh, we can do all of, you know, all of these things whatever it is sure we can do it uh even if we don't fully understand it um having these reminders of people who have kind of a deferential respect for a place seemed important to pull up
0: uh i i mentioned the ending of the story now i want to go back to, to the lead again and you kind of you do lead with cindy lee Vandover, dover the, the scientist who features most prominently in the story. Um but why did you why did you decide to lead with her uh and not necessarily your time uh in Papua New Guinea which you mentioned you just spent, you spent some time there with with those people
1: Mostly because I you know that that's a a really interesting and unique place and I, I had I had more space I could have written a lot more about it but it's not the place where you are able to most immediately and viscerally understand how distant and strange and poorly understood the deep sea is. Uh,
0: can can you talk a little bit about your time in Papua New Guinea and, and maybe, uh, anything that you were surprised by, uh, while you were there?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's a difficult place to report from. I would say there's, you know, you hear a lot of different things from different people or from the same person at a different time. Um, and it's also, it's just, it's hard to get around. Uh, I guess I was, what was I surprised by? It's, it's a whole different kind of legal system. Um, the way that they approach development and deciding how to take something on is pretty different. Um, so, in PNG, the, the vast majority of land is actually still owned by the people usually in these communal family groups that are not very well defined. And so there's, there can be lots of debates about who really controls which land. Um, So in in a sense, people have an unusual amount of power and it, and it leads to a, a situation where, you know, there's a lot of poverty, but it's not the sort of grinding poverty that you see in other places. Um, you know, pe- people don't have money, but they they really do have access to land mm-hmm. and family supports.
0: You you mentioned that you are still doing some reporting on on this. You know, like uh, like a timeline of when you might have other stories coming out about this.
1: Uh, not specifically yet, no. No, they're, I was just curious.
0: On. I'm looking forward to reading more after <laughs> after reading uh, uh, the deepest dig. We're we're talking uh, with Brooke Jarvis uh, here on Gangry the podcast. Uh, Brooke, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with more. Gangry the podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the five hundred year old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. This is Matt Tullis on Gangry the Podcast, and I'm talking with Brooke Jarvis, a journalist who lives in Seattle and writes a lot of long-form narrative and environmental journalism. Brooke, let's talk about your story, Homeward, uh, which just ran uh, in March uh, in the California Sunday Magazine. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what that story is about?
1: Yeah, that story um, is more or less a profile of a young man named Hugo Lucifante who was raised uh, in a small village in a fairly remote part of the Amazon in Ecuador. And when he was 10, his family found a way to... Send him to the United States for school, and that opportunity kind of lengthened, and and he's been here on and off ever since. And the reason that they sent him um, is that they've had really decades of uh, struggles against oil companies, mostly um, Texaco. Uh, it's it's there's that famous lawsuit that's been going on for decades. They're plaintiffs in that. Um, and also struggles with uh, colonization, where the Ecuadorian government had allowed colonists to, to own any land that they cleared, and it was really removing a lot of the the forest around um, the, that they had traditionally used. Anyway, so they, they kind of saw the writing on the wall of there, all of these new and difficult pressures that are changing... Their way of life and they had to do something about it, but they were not, you know they the the people who had power were were negotiating and operating in a way that was totally new to them and that they didn't understand. it was it was very different from the way that things worked in the Kofan community. And there was a actually a man who lived there who was the son of American missionaries but who had grown up as a Kofan. And they had seen how his ability to navigate both worlds had made him an unusually effective leader and had helped them preserve the land that they had been able to preserve, had helped them evict oil companies from their land twice, which they did um, you know, with spears and, and fully dressed for battle. But what really was effective was the negotiation. And so they saw that and had a really clear vision that they needed to create new leaders who were able to navigate both worlds. And sending Ugo away was part of that vision. Um, and then they later sent other children to to be educated, although most of them went to Quito. Um, but Ugo ended up basically by by chance in Seattle, where I live and where I met him. And, you know, it's kind of a a fascinating story of how he has navigated that incredible responsibility that he feels hanging over his head, um, and it's, you know, it's a way of showing the the way of the different places in our world are more connected than we think, and I was also drawn to it because these stories of, you know, oh, indigenous community is uh, struggling against oil company, you know. That story has become so familiar that we start to ignore it. People think they they know how it turns out. They think it's you know it's a bummer, right. <laughs> but um, it's not surprising. Right. It's not anything that we feel like we can learn something new about. Mm-hmm. And I thought that profiling Ugo and the story of his village um, would would be a new and surprising way to look at what has become a familiar story.
0: Yeah, as I was reading that piece, I was um, struck by just how different the two worlds he has to navigate are uh, and what that must be like um, to go from, you know, uh, one place to the other and and spend an, a significant amount of time in those places.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, and he's gotten really good at it. Um, but it was it was definitely tricky for him in the beginning. And I loved talking, you know, I talked to a lot of people who knew him as a child when he first came to Seattle And they all have these really distinct memories of what it was like, you know, the, just the little stuff that we take for granted that was so new to him and that he didn't know what to do about. And, you know, he has stories like that too. And he laughs about them now, um, because he does have this, you know, this really hard earned knowledge of both places, but it's also, you know, that's difficult. That means Mm -hmm. that when he goes back to his hometown, he's, he's pretty different than the people who have never left, Mm -hmm. um, and they're certainly, you know, still able to connect. It's his friends and his family. But he has to struggle with being a little bit of a stranger there.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the anecdotes uh, in the piece that I remember is him taking his first shower. Uh-huh. Uh, but he climbed in with his clothes on because that's how they bathed in the river, right? <laughs> so right. I, I think that's a really good illustration of kind of, you know, moving from one area to another. Um, how, how did you report the story? How long did you report this story? Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: sure. it was It was an unusually fast turnaround for a print magazine story, I would say. Um, I found, uh, you know a little a, a blurb about him in the Seattle Times that was pretty old, um but had enough in it to make me think, you know, there's definitely more of a story there. Um, and so I you know, I found him on Facebook. I got in touch. We went to get coffee. And he told me that he was going back to Ecuador for Christmas in, I think it was just a, a month, maybe even mm-hmm. less. Uh, so that, that was fast turnaround for getting, you know, getting the magazine on board, doing the planning. Um, and then I I went and met him there uh, with, and and his wife and daughter were there and a photographer came and we spent, um, we spent about a week in the village. Um and then I also, you know, did a lot of interviewing him and interviewing people that he had known in Seattle.
0: Uh, were there any challenges with, with interviewing uh, on, his, on his homeland?
1: Yeah, it was it was tricky. Um, not everybody speaks Spanish. Uh, so there were cases where I would have to get... And, and it wasn't like I could hire a translator. You mm-hmm. know, there are not many Kofan speakers in the world, and certainly none that wouldn't have their own kind of role in the story in some way. Um, but I, you know, there, there were enough people who had, who had both languages that I was able to get them to help translate mm-hmm. if I was speaking to people who didn't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, you know, Hugo's family speaks Spanish quite well. Um, there's, for example, the shaman in the story, uh, Mauricio He, um, his Spanish is not, is not as good, but it's, it's enough that I was able to confirm things with him directly and then, um, get translation for the, you know, sort of the nuances of what he was saying. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, when did you learn Spanish and how has that helped you as a reporter?
1: It's been surprisingly helpful. I need to (laughs) probably brush up on it. I mean, I, you know, I took, I actually was a, a double major in Spanish in college, um, and I have, I have family in South America, so I've traveled there a lot.
0: Uh, what was your other major? English. English. Okay. Yeah. Um, was there, a, in terms of writing, uh, this, the story, um, were there any challenges? Uh, it, it sound, did you, you wrote it really quickly as well? The reporting was short. Uh, do you have to write it quickly as well? Or, uh, what were really some prepared. of the challenges that you, that you encountered, you know, like pulling everything together?
1: Um, yeah, it was it was moving quick. I think my my deadline was um, you know a week after I got back from Ecuador, uh, and there, you know, in that time I had some additional reporting to do. So it it was a, a very quick turnaround piece as these things go. Uh,
0: when you're but, work- oh sorry.
1: Oh, it just you know some some pieces are harder to for me anyway. You know the the structure is what kills me and slows me down endlessly if I don't see clearly how it's going to work and for this one it was fairly straightforward to well yeah, I mean we we did change it around um in a few times but you know you you have the two stories really three stories you have present day Ecuador four stories present day Seattle and then the past in Seattle and the past in Ecuador mm-hmm. um that you have to you have to weave together
0: when, you, when you're working on a big story like this, do you outline? Uh, do you write as you go? Um, I mean, everybody does something differently, and I'm always fascinated to hear uh, how other reporters, their, their work process when they're doing a big story. <laughs>
1: um, I guess I mostly write as I go, and then I have sort of a moving outline. Um, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm planning out what the next sections are going to be, uh, but I'm, I'm more of a right as right as I go person. Um, mm-hmm. because sometimes things fit in a place where you didn't expect them to fit.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, when did you, uh, uh, when did you know you wanted to be a reporter?
1: Good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I did like in high school, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. Um, but I didn't know at that point that it was something that I wanted to do. And then um, in college, I, I did a, a lot of literature was really my focus, like literary analysis kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became clear that I didn't want to do that for a living. Um, it felt kind of too arcane. Uh, <laughs> I remember doing this, this paper on, you know, four lines of a Milton poem that won an award. And I was like, this does not really matter these four lines of the Milton poem. <laughs> it's that that was because I had thought about going into academia for mm-hmm. a while. Um, really, actually, a friend. Now that I think about it, a friend pointed out to me. I was talking to her about you know what I was going to do with my life, and she said, "Well, you should be a journalist, of course." And I was like, "Oh, that's a good <laughs> idea." But at that time, I, uh, I I was interested in radio. I wanted to go into radio. Okay, that seemed harder to crack.
0: Did you um? Was this after college when you decided that this is what you wanted to do, or while you were in college, or?
1: It was kind of at the tail end of college, mm-hmm. um, and so then I started looking for, you know, internships, ways to get started.
0: So, what was your first job out of college?
1: Oh, my very first job out of college was building trails <laughs> for, um, for a uh, different public lands agencies. So that wasn't really related. But it was fun.
0: That seems like uh, a really cool first job. <laughs> Sounds much better than my first job at a newspaper, actually. So <laughs> what is your favorite thing about doing the type of work that you do?
1: Definitely talking to people that I wouldn't ordinarily talk to. Um, and you know, it, I feel like you see a different side of a place than you would see. I was thinking about this recently. I was in um, I, w- I was on Maui doing a story. And I, I actually used to live in Hawaii and I know it well, uh, but I I was there and I was thinking how much I would not like to just be on pure vacation, mm-hmm. but how much fun I was having getting to, you know, go to parts of the island that you're not normally allowed mm-hmm. to visit and see things that you don't usually get to see. So that that's really it. And, you know, Maui is one kind of an example, but another is that you, you know, you spend time hanging out with farm workers in the fields or in housing or are you, you know, in refugee camps or where wherever it is. Like it's an excuse to figure really just just to meet interesting people and find out how many interesting people are around you. Mm-hmm. If you're just walking down the street, everybody is, you know, a mystery. You don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. It would be super weird to ask them detailed personal questions. Right. Right would be really weird and this is an excuse to get to do that right but that's what i like best is you you see the world in a really different way
0: well brooke thanks for joining the podcast
1: thank you thanks for having me It was really a pleasure talking to you
0: that was an interview i did with brooke jarvis in may 2015 jarvis is a contributing writer to the new york times magazine and the california sunday magazine I've linked to a lot of her newer stories on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N g-r-e-y podcast gangrene the podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University it's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U this episode was hosted and produced by yours truly I'm Matt Tullis thanks for joining us